morning, church. My name is John, and I'm the uh, administrative pastor at the church. I get to preach a real fun sermon for you today, and uh, Aaron picked the sermon. So Aaron's also conveniently out of town right now. Um, But yeah, today's passage is going to be on money. We have been in a sermon series that has been all about renewal, renewal in different aspects of life. Uh, the first kind of section that we looked at was renewal related to our own minds, hearts, and bodies. And the second section was related more to uh, the relational side of things for us. We talked about marriage, dating, friendship, and parenting. And uh, the final phase of this sermon series focuses more on the practical kind of things of life. So today's is about money, but it will also talk about work community serving and and other topics and um, as we do that I just want to uh, um, pause to say you know with James coming here um, what a what a great job guys <laughs> like seriously the over over Christmas giving so much away um, as I was preparing the sermon it really uh, impacted me thinking about it like man I think I think our, our church does well in this like overall, I mean, there's always room to grow, right? Um, but like individually, uh, when we all come together and we can meet needs in the community, that the other parts of the community say like, wow, why do you guys do that? That's weird. You know, I would much rather buy something for myself with that money. Um, it, it demonstrates this, uh, this renewed understanding of the gospel that we see in the text today. So huge encouragement there. And um, I'll go ahead and pray, but as I pray, I want to invite you to join me, not just in praying uh, that our hearts would be open to God's word here, but also for our students, our middle school students are getting back this afternoon from a retreat they had this weekend. So I want to pray for them that uh, God's word will continue to um, take root in their lives and those relationships would build and be fruitful. And also uh, over the past few days, if you hadn't heard, um, I want to pray for Ukraine. Ukraine has been uh, invaded by Russia, and from a distance, it's always hard to know what the motivations are, what all is going on, you know, but um, what we do know is that there's a fair amount of destruction in Ukraine, uh, and it is uh, occupied with Russian troops, and, and uh, uh, there's, there's a lot of hurting people, so I want to take a little bit of time in praying for them as well. Would you join me now? Lord, we thank you for your word that instructs us on everything in life, including finances, and God, we ask that you would give us a receptive heart to hear your words, that we would um, hear your words as from God and not from man, and uh, that we would live wisely, we would live accordingly. I ask that you would enable me to preach as I should on what can be a sensitive topic. Lord, we pray for our middle school students coming back now with Pastor Jason from a uh, a weekend retreat with uh, probably little sleep and lots of caffeine and all the, all the fun things that they get to do, but the, the time spent together focusing on your word. God, I ask that, uh, and we ask that all of that effort would just be multiplied over and again so that uh, the next generation grows up here knowing who you are and loving you. Lord, we pray for Ukraine. God, we pray that you would end the war in Ukraine and with Russia. You would protect people. God, that you would bring 
peace, especially for uh, your church in Ukraine. God, we ask that you would equip the pastors to lead um, and preach powerfully about your coming kingdom and the hope that is in your kingdom and not in this world. God, we ask that uh, as as, uh, believers get together and they learn in churches how to dress wounds and tie tourniquets that um, the people of Ukraine would be able to see that your people are different. And uh, God, we do ask for uh, peace and end of the war over there and saving of lives. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as we begin today, I couldn't help but think about hot fries as I thought about this sermon. And the reason for that is because hot fries was a very big part of my life in high school. If you don't know what hot fries are, they are uh, like uh, spicy styrofoam. Uh, I've never eaten styrofoam, but I imagine that that's what they taste like. And, uh, you know, just like a little bag of chips, a little bag of hot fries. And I was first introduced to hot fries when I was a a young lad. Um, my, My dad was a firefighter in Houston for 36 years. And he had a number of vending machines in the fire stations in and around Houston. And so one of my jobs growing up was to uh, stock the vending machines with him. So I would make the rounds to all the fire stations, which is great. I mean, firemen are great, you know, and you get to know a lot of people. Um, But as a kid, the the real downside of that job was that all kinds of like snacks and candy passed through my hands and I didn't get much of it. (laughs) So that was always torturous as a child. Um, but periodically, you know, I did get my pick of candy, whatever it was. Um, hot fries was at the top of the list, but I mean, famous Amos cookies were there and, uh, M&Ms. That's always a good choice. And, um, as I was doing that, I just, I really love hot fries. And, and it wasn't until high school, I got to high school that I realized like, wait a second, I have money. I have money from working. Now I can buy hot fries myself. And so one of the things I invested in just for my own stomach, was hot fries. And uh, then I ended up going to Sam's because we went to Sam's often. I realized I can buy a case of hot fries. And so in high school, Andrea can attest to this, I was often walking around with a bag of hot fries everywhere I went. Um, You know, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, any events uh, at church. I was filthy rich in hot fries and I loved it. And uh, it got to the point where I was, I had so many that I would just hand them out to people. I felt so generous, you know? I mean, I had boxes full of hot fries, so I stuffed my backpack full of hot fries, and I would hand them out to my friends. They're like, how are you doing today? Want some hot fries? Here, have some hot fries. I, I had so many hot fries. I remember I, I, I threw one bag at somebody, and it landed on the windshield of a car, and we drove off, and then this, you know, this kind of thing went off the windshield, and we're all wondering what it was. Did we hit a bird? You know, you know, we finally realized it was a bag of hot fries that I had carelessly left laying around. I just had tons of it until I didn't. And then uh, I had to really ration out my resources, right? I had like a few bags left, so I'd keep some in the closet, and I'd take like one bag with me somewhere. Maybe I'd eat it where nobody else could see. Um, and, uh, and that's just often what I did with hot fries. And you may think that that's weird. That's fine. That's fine. Um, but uh, I think we all do that with money. We all do that with money. When you have a bunch of it, you don't care, right? You just give it away to people. Uh, you're more generous. 
but when you have a little bit of it, now things are different. Now things are different. And um, I think that illustrates for us some of what Paul's getting at in this passage. And before we just get straight into it, I want to give you one caveat, which is in this sermon series, every sermon that we're doing has a focus, which also means you cannot say everything about this topic, okay? So uh, there's probably going to be stuff related to money or finances and stewardship that you're going to have after this sermon where you say, well, can I have a boat? Can I have good things? Uh, Food and clothing, what kind of clothing? Because it really makes a difference. We're not addressing that kind of stuff in the scope of this sermon, uh, but feel free to talk about it afterwards. This one is mainly going at a renewed, um, renewed view of money. And so the main point for this morning is this, that we need a renewed understanding of money in relation to the gospel. That's the main point from this passage. We need a renewed understanding of money in relation to the gospel. And uh, there are three points of, an, of, uh, of really help that Paul gives us here about that in this passage. Number one, uh, we, need to see ins- we need instruction about money. That's one thing he's going to say. You need it. Number two, uh, we need to know our functional doctrine of money. Number three, we need to use money to get life. So talking about instruction, doctrine, and life all related to money. And it's not sensitive at all, he says sarcastically. So um, this morning, we're just going to tackle the first verse here, 1 Timothy 6, 2b. And Paul says to Timothy, teach and encourage these things. Teach and encourage these things. Now, these five words are very important in... uh, in Timothy here, in the letter to Timothy. And Paul, if you didn't know, the apostle is writing to a young pastor named Timothy in a place called Ephesus, in a region called Macedonia in the Roman world. It's a very secular area. There are lots of worldviews going on, and there's lots of money. There's lots of uh, money changing hands for different reasons, reasons in this area of the world. And as that is happening, Paul is writing to Timothy to say, You are going to have to lead, Timothy. You've got to lead. There's one church in Ephesus, and you're the pastor. And you're going to have to step into people's lives and say things that they don't want to hear, but they need to hear. So let me write you a letter about all the things you're going to need to address. And that is 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy has a little softer tone to it uh, because it's more just kind of an attaboy like, Timothy, you're doing it. Good job. Keep going. This one is more forceful. Out of the 20 times that the word teach is used in the New Testament here, Paul will say it 11 times in this little letter. He really is going to push this issue of teaching. Timothy, you got to teach. you got to teach. The church needs teaching on all areas of life, most of which in this passage pertain to money. So... um, This is nothing new in the letter. It doesn't just happen at the end. It happens at the beginning. In 1 Timothy 1, 1, verse 3, Paul says this as he begins the letter. As I urged you, or your translation may say encouraged you, upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach strange doctrine. Later on, Paul will say it's not strange, it's false. 
There's, there's bad stuff. It's not just weird. There's some weird stuff, but there's just bad stuff that people are teaching. Timothy, you need to counter that. You bring in sound doctrine. And as he does that, he will use two words in this passage, at the beginning, later on through the letter, and at the end here, teach and encourage these things. These are two very important words for us to pay attention to. And if I can nerd out for you just a moment, I will uh, tell you a little bit more. You may be saying, well, haven't you already been nerding out? Maybe. Maybe. Um, The two words that Paul brings here are teach and encourage or urge. The first one, didasko, in Greek, it just means teach. This is the uh, communication of information. It can be fairly cognitive or informational. There's things that you need to know. You don't know them, so let me tell you what those things are. And now you know what they are. That is teaching. And that is one of the things that Paul is saying uh, Timothy has to do. He has to teach these things. We'll get to these things in just a minute. But he says, number one, that's it. There's a deficiency. People don't know. God's people don't know how to live godly lives. And so, Timothy, you teach them. The second word he uses here is to urge or instruct. I like the word urge um, simply because I think it communicates a little more force than encourage. Encourage is like, come on, everybody. There's definitely that. But urge is also more um, tell them. Both of these are in the, in the imperative form, which means that this is not, a, uh, it's not up for debate. It's a command. It's do it. I'm convinced this is why everybody likes watching uh, Chef Gordon Ramsay, because he only talks in imperatives. Have you noticed that? Every time. Chicken, cook, pan, hot, salt, in. It's all imperatives. That's what he does. And, and it's the same thing that Paul is doing here, as he's saying that you have to teach, yes, but you also have to urge or encourage. And uh, this is actually a compound word, and the word is uh, parakaleo, It means, uh, on the one hand, by or besides, and on the other, it means to to tell um, or to speak, to call forth. And uh, this combination is really important because it's uh, very similar to what Jesus does in the Gospels when he comes and he will give a, a truth from the Old Testament, but then he'll also provide a parable to help people understand the truth. It's the same, uh, same root word, para, by or beside. And so Paul says, Timothy, your job and the, the way that people in the church need to relate to one another is not just receiving the information, which has to happen, but you also go up next to them and help them understand how to apply these things. It's a very intimate way of relating and teaching. This is not just information. It is guiding. It is coaching. It is practicing with somebody the, uh, the truths of the Christian, Christian life. So that is how we understand Paul doing this. He's not remote. He's not in an ivory, ivory tower. He's not in an armchair. He is coming up alongside Timothy, helping him do these things that he's saying. You have to do this. So that's the way that Paul is talking to Timothy. Not only that, um, but he'll say, teach and encourage or urge these things. Now, um, I won't spend a whole lot of time on this, but these things, the phrase, these things, is really a tie back to what Paul has talked about and then also what he's about to say. So what Paul has talked about, starting in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, is some touchy subjects. Again, Paul 
does not shy away from the touchy subjects, and so we should not either. Some of the things that Paul tells Timothy to tell other people about is uh, how to instruct people. He says, your job, Timothy, is to instruct older men and younger women. And younger men and older women. He says the whole thing. You've got to instruct them. How many times have you had somebody in your life tell you something who is younger than you and think, "Uh, yeah, you don't know. You don't know yet. That's that's how we all naturally act, but Paul says you got to step into it. Don't avoid it. Uh, What about widows? Paul gives Timothy instruction about how to care for widows. Who should care for a widow? What constitutes a widow? Does the church provide for her? Does her family provide for her? Sensitive stuff. Uh, Even Paul's own financial support when he returns, he says, when I return, you be ready to receive me. Like, help me financially. Uh, maybe, th- maybe this one is, uh, rubs you a little bit more uncomfortably. But um, in verse 18, he says, uh, he tells Timothy that his job is to instruct the church of how to pay pastors. So Paul is telling Timothy to tell the people how much to pay Timothy. Do you see that? How would you like that? Um, I don't think it's a particular dollar amount, but it is this understanding of compensation. Paul says, don't muzzle the ox while it treads out grain. A local congregation is supposed to uh, help take care of a pastor so that he can do the work of ministry. Again, sensitive stuff, right? And uh, not only that, Paul just throws in there at the end, he's like, and slaves, if they're slaves and their masters are believers, they should serve all the more. And Timothy, that's your job. You have to go to the slave and say, Slave, you need to work harder for your master. (laughs) This is not easy, right? So even as reading this, I get kind of uncomfortable, but I I hope we're all in the uncomfortable bucket together here. Um, These are some hard things that Paul is telling Timothy to do, but they are godly things. They're godly things. And so the first point that we have here is simply that we need instruction about money. Much of what Paul talks about here is related to money. Uh, Care for widows. How do you do that? That's finances. Compensating ministers. That's finances. What about uh, caring for needs of your family? That's ministers. That's uh, finances. So all these things, they, they have to do with money. And Paul doesn't shy away from it. He says, this is a significant part of a believer's life and you need to provide instruction. So, church, I wonder, how do you receive instruction in this? What is your your kind of default here? Do you have some kind of uh, natural uh, defense mechanism where you say, like, oh, well, that's good for other people? Or maybe, I think this is a big one, you say, well, I've already learned that stuff. I don't need to be instructed because I already, I already was instructed. You see, the older that we get, the more and more that we think that kind of way. That I've already learned something. I've already figured this out. And Paul says, no, Timothy, step in and help. Step in, step in and help people. And uh, it made me think about Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes 4. He says, better a poor but wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to Heed a warning. We don't, we don't get too old for God's word. It doesn't happen. 
And so number one this morning, we need instruction. We need to take that in. And I wonder as an application-related point, do you have people in your life as a believer that can speak to you as gut-level honest as Paul does to Timothy? Or as Paul is telling Timothy to do for others? We need that in the Christian life. We need it. Second point this morning is that we also need to know our functional doctrine of money. We need to know our functional doctrine of money. Now, I say functional doctrine of money because um, I think, especially with this passage, we all have a doctrine of money. We all operate that way. Every day of your life, you're indoctrinated into understanding how to use money. And more than ever in history, people have figured out how to engineer that to make you spend money on things. And that is a doctrine of money. It's a functional doctrine. Now, I'll get into uh, the, the passage here a little bit in a second as we're talking about these things on, on the other side of it. But when we think about uh, doctrine of money, we would say, well, yes, you use your money for the poor. Use it for orphan, orphans and widows. Those are the right Bible answers. But I say functional doctrine of money, right? Because we all have a way that we're we're operating, we are living out of in relation to our money, but it may not actually be as biblical as we think. So here's, a, here's a, the next passage here, and I'm just going to read it fast because I think that's the way that Paul wrote it. I think he, with uh, you know, just a uh, dictator, he just dictated this very quickly. You can almost hear it in the way that he writes. It's like he takes one breath for the whole thing. Teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. Pause. Breath. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth who imagine that godliness is a way to inherit material gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. You see, Paul here isn't going to give us just a, a straight up list of false doctrine, true, true doctrine. Rather, he gives us a picture of what false doctrine lives look like. What is the behavior of people who teach false doctrine and then how do you kind of get sucked up into that? Do you start doing those things? And so um, I have an extrapolation from the passage of just some five different ways that I saw uh, false doctrine is working or sound doctrine is working in this passage. It should be on the screen for you here. False doctrine, I am right because I have money. I am right because I have money. Verse 4, they're conceited. False teachers are conceited. They think, ah, I don't need anybody else. I know what's right. I can tell people what to do because I have money. I can leverage godliness for money. This is a big one where, uh, where I come from in Houston with lots of prosperity gospel churches that, that teach that uh, God will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, and you never suffer. And as an extension of that, um, the, the preacher will often call for a special offering or expect gifts, particularly around their birthday. It might be new to you, but um, every year... For me in Houston, there was always some news article about how 
um, at a certain kind of denomination, a pastor received a Mercedes Benz for his birthday, or a Lexus, or a boat. That is not what Paul's talking about. He's saying don't leverage godliness for money. That is a false doctrine. That is a worldly way of thinking. What about money is mine and it makes me better than others? In verse 17, we'll get to in a little bit, but uh, he says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth but on God. You see, money has this effect for us where uh, when we have it, we think, I'm better. I have money because I'm better. Maybe we don't say it. Again, functional doctrine. Money will protect me. That might be the biggest one. Money will protect me. A uh, false doctrine of money believes that money will solve all your problems. And whether that is in the moment that you just want a bunch of money to take care of your immediate comfort needs, or that you say later on, I need X amount by retirement so that I don't have to worry about anything else after I retire. I'm not saying retirement's bad. Again, this is one sermon. But do you see how Paul's talking about the lifestyle of people who are false teachers with this false doctrine of money? But more than that, there's also sound doctrine here. In verse 6, godliness is worth more than money. If you put them on the scale, godliness wins every time. Uh, Verse 7, we are not owed money. That's a hard one for us. That's a hard one. For we brought nothing into the world. You brought nothing. When you were born. Zero. We often live like we think that we deserve money. Not saying that we don't work for compensation. But there's this expectation. Or maybe that we don't, that uh, we can't take it with us. How about that good, true, sound doctrine? You can't take it with you. That's one of the, that's one of the things that people hate the most. Or maybe that we don't need that much. In verse 8, content with food and clothing. Paul says, that's all you really need. Now, again, we're not saying that more things can't be good. Education, excellent. I think education is an excellent thing to spend money on. But can you be content without it? Desiring money will destroy me. That's a powerful sound doctrine here at the end in verse 9. John Piper has a quote about uh, this passage. Uh, He says this, You will enter eternity with nothing but the measure of contentment that you had in God. If that is the case, if that is the case, then how much contentment are you going to have? Is there any contentment after you die? That's the only thing that transfers. Not your stuff, not your money, not your your clout, not your fame, not what people say about you. It's going to be your contentment in relation to a holy God. And so Timothy, uh, here's a little bit more here in verse 9. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it some have wandered away from the faith. And pierce themselves with many griefs. Money, of course, itself is not bad. 
It's not. Money's not bad. It's neutral. It is, as Jesus points out, and now Paul does again, the love of money that is the root of all evil. There's something in our hearts that, that is not content. It's not content. It always wants more. And this love of money will destroy us. Again, that is sound doctrine that Paul is espousing to Timothy to teach to other people. If you pursue a life of working your knuckles to the bone so you can amass wealth, you'll lose it overnight. And then what? Desiring money will destroy us if it is this inordinate desire. It gets too high. It gets too big. It crowds out all of life. Crowds out your family, crowds out your friends, crowds out your church. So we need a right view of our functional doctrine of money. And, and Paul really, um, he, he hones in here at the end his example to Timothy of the consequences of the false doctrine, doesn't he? He says there's two ways, uh, two consequences, two ways this works out. Number one is... If you pursue a life of going after wealth, this love of money, you will walk away from the faith. You'll wander from it. You're off the course, off the path. Your life is now totally different than what it should be. And secondly, and also worsely, you impale yourself, yourself with many griefs. Um, in, the, in Greek, it's, it's um, kind of disturbing because it's reflexive. It's not somebody else's impaling you. It's you impale yourself. You hurt yourself. You wound yourself. You destroy your own life. And this word uh, for pierce or impale that Paul's using is actually the only occurrence in the New Testament which tells us uh, something special normally. Normally, um, normally grammarians and, uh, and people have to go out and search the culture and see, well, how is this word used in other places? And a lot of commentators agree that Paul is making a nod here to the Odyssey because another place that the word is used is in the Odyssey. And if you have ever read or heard about the Odyssey, it's about one man named Odysseus uh, in Greek mythology who goes out and um, uh, becomes a hero at a great war. And after the war tries to go home and he's, he's told that if he tries to go home, it's going to be a long time because he's going to have to go through all these trials from the gods. And, uh, and so, turns out, he does it. He tries to go home, and his first trial is by way of the island of Ithaca. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, this is where the sirens were. And the sirens had one job in life. Destroy men. That's it. That was all that they did. And so Circe, the god Circe, comes to comes to uh, Odysseus here, and he says, Odysseus, if you go out on that ship into the sea, you're going to go across an island called Ithaca. And on that island are sirens. And they sound beautiful. They sound, they sound satisfying. But they're monsters. And if you hear the sound of the sirens, they will draw you into the rocks, the reef of the island, and you'll die. And all your men. And so um, the men end up taking beeswax and filling their ears with it so they can't hear the sound of the sirens. But Odysseus is tied, he's lashed to the mast of the ship. And as the ship is going by the island, all of the men can't hear the sound. 
but Odysseus does. And he rants and raves and cuts himself trying to get out of the lashings on the mast. And after they're far gone, they let him loose and he's torn up. Why? Because when he heard the siren song, he couldn't control himself. And that's what I think Paul is hinting to about money. And this is the actual siren song from the story. Odysseus, bravest of heroes, draw near to us on our green island. Odysseus will teach you wisdom, will give you love sweeter than honey. The songs we sing soothe away sorrow, and in our arms you will be happy. Odysseus, bravest of heroes, the songs we sing will bring you peace. Doesn't that sound like money? It sounds like money to me. The songs we sing will bring you peace. But they're monsters. The story tells us. I think Paul is making this point. If you pursue this love of money for your life, you will impale yourself on the rocks of the sirens. And so we need to know. We need to know what our functional doctrine of money is. Not only that, we also need to know how to use money to get life. And I get that from this last section here. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19. Paul says this to Timothy after he says, Flee these things. Again, these things. Flee them. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. See, Paul tells us here that we also need to use money to get life. This point actually made me a little uncomfortable when I was studying, not the... The rest of it didn't as well. But Paul is clearly saying something here to uh, the rich, mainly. And that is that you need to use your money for good works. You need to be rich in good works. And being rich in good works will also provide you a foundation for the next life. A foundation for the coming age. So that, purpose clause, they may take hold of what is truly life. You see, money has this allure, like I said, the siren song, but what it, what it puts forward to us as an offer is to say, do you want life? Do you really want life? Then pursue me. Take this. Use me. And we use money to try to do that. We use money to try to get life, but the life that we have in view is often very short and fleeting and temporary. It's not eternal. And it's not satisfying. Anyone, uh, anyone who ever has pursued money always wants more. There's no end to it. You never get to a point in which you say, this is enough. It doesn't happen. Because there's not life in it. And Paul says, you use money to get life. You, you use money for good works. Now this sounds to me at first blush like Paul is saying, you use money to get into the kingdom. Some people may misinterpret what Paul is saying in that way. He's not saying that. He is saying God gave us money so that we could turn it back and say, isn't God great? And that is a prime example 
of the way the church is supposed to be different from the world. Because when we're talking about false doctrine, we're talking about worldly doctrine. And what are you marketed every day of your life? Store it up. Buy bigger houses. Get better stuff. Buy your own island. I would love my own island. (laughs) Who wouldn't love their own island? But that is not what Paul is saying here. Instead, we use that money for good works, and the good works points us to Jesus. And the, uh, the force of this is really powerful here because Paul comes in, he says uh, a third, to geek out on you again, third Greek word for you, paraangelos. And that means, that means that Paul is stepping in even further. At this point, I thought like, okay, Paul's being pretty rough, like, you know, invasive. He's, he hadn't even started yet, okay? <laughs> hadn't even started. And it's because when he uses this word, instruct those who are rich in the present age, also meaning like there's another age you may not be rich in. But instruct is a word that is another compound word of, of uh, the para, the, the buyer beside, with angels. Angelos always means angel, anywhere in the New Testament. Paul is saying, I'm going to tell you this, and you tell them as if an angel came from the throne room of God not to use their money for selfish gain. He says, Timothy, you instruct the rich in particular that their use of money needs to be aimed at good works. And you hear that as a word coming off of God's own lips. This is a serious command from Paul to Timothy and for us that we need to take in. And it's serious because we know that God really loves good works more than money because Jesus himself came and gave us the best good work anyone could ever do. You see, Jesus, in relation to money, was horribly poor. At his birth, his parents took him to the temple to consecrate him, like Moses' law said. And when they did that, they offered two turtle doves. You know what that means? Dirt poor. They could not afford a lamb. They could not afford a better sacrifice. More than that, Jesus, as he grows up as a man, is so poor he has nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't even have a bed. Jesus is so poor that religious leaders come to him and say, hey, you've got to pay taxes to Caesar. And he's not going to get drawn into the argument. He just says, Peter, go fishing, catch a fish. The fish has a coin. Take the coin out. Give the coin to the guys. He didn't even have a coin to give to him. And Jesus also went forward for us in the temptation of the devil. Do you remember what the last temptation was? There was one for bread, meaning his physical needs. There was one for his fame, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. And the last one was the splendor. The devil took Jesus and said, here's all the riches. Here's all the splendor the world has to offer. Jesus turned it down. Worship and serve your God only. See, Jesus, even though incredibly poor, left us an example to say, your contentment is not found in your riches. It's found in your relationship with God. And we get to use money to tell people about our relationship with God. And Jesus, uh, probably the the best, most powerful example in the scriptures, certainly, is that Jesus' own life, death, and resurrection for us show us that God has canceled the debt of sin for us. However, much money you think you need in life, 
you will never have even the first coins of it to rub together in relation to the amount of debt that you owe for sin. The, the, the debt that we are in to God for sin and his holiness doesn't have an end. There's no bottom to it, which is why suffering is forever. Turning away from God merits judgment forever. Why? Because you can't put a number on it. You can't pay it back. But when the perfect, sinless, righteous Son of God comes and dies for sinners, He wipes it clean. Your debt is paid. There is nothing else to pay. The balance is clear. And more than that, when Jesus is raised on the third day, He bestows on you His righteousness, the riches of heaven. There's never been anyone more wealthy than Jesus. You take all of the riches of the earth, you combine them, and they're not worth more than an apple in the heavenly realm. Jesus had it all. And he left the heavens, came down to earth, born in a stable, lived a a sinless and poverty-stricken life, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and gave you who believe in him his eternal righteousness and riches. This is why Paul says later on in the epistles that we are seated with Christ in the heavens, even now. You have never been, as a believer, poor. You are richer than anyone will ever be in the world. More wealthy than anyone could imagine. You have a relationship with the Father. You have a future hope. You have a, a life to look forward to that is not limited by a certain dollar amount. You will need nothing. This is the life that Jesus gives us as he lays down his life and picks it back up. You see, Jesus gave us an example. And the example is that money is not bad, but money is to be used to show the watching world how great he is, how wonderful he is, and how much we actually believe, functionally believe, that he is worth. So often we use money to get a fragile version of life, but it can be shattered in a second. A renewed understanding of money in relation to the gospel, however, teaches us that money is valuable for good works to demonstrate how glorious God is. So this morning, let me just close with three points of application. Number one, we are to, I think, instruct and urge, encourage, come alongside other believers and help them use their money wisely. That may make you uncomfortable. Doesn't make Paul uncomfortable one bit. He says, Timothy, you better tell people to do that. Now, I'm not saying that you need to determine for people, you know, where they're going out to eat or what clothes they're going to wear. I'm just saying we need a check and balance in our relationship as believers to where we can have the permission to be able to say, do you think you're loving money too much? We need that. Second, give. Give away some money. I love the example that we have from DCYF and we've contributed to as a church. But what a great opportunity to stop and rethink about giving. Giving uh, to the church, certainly. We talk about that every week and being generous. But the money that you give here goes more than just to the church. It goes out into the community. Or maybe beyond the church, giving to individual organizations. 
And third, consider if you are truly taking hold of life. You see, Paul's final words to Timothy here are about life. He says, everybody wants it. Money promises you life, and it cannot deliver. Jesus promises you life, and he's the real deal. So next time that you purchase something, think, just, just run it through the, the matrix. Am I getting this because I'm wanting to satisfy some craving for life that won't actually happen? Or am I doing it because I'm living as a child of God in the world he gave me, and I want to bless others? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for instructing us. Even if it's difficult for us sometimes. Lord, I thank you that in your, your patience and your kindness, you do unearth idols in our own hearts. Especially as we study, especially as we hear you. And Lord, today... I, I just confess that I often, I often do this. I often use money thinking that I am going to get life by it. But you're the real life, Lord. So would you open our eyes and help us see what you want us to do? Maybe in ways strange or, or foreign to most of us about giving up things that we think are ours. Giving up things that we think are our right. Lord, but you own everything. God, so would you help us to live with a renewed understanding of money and experience true life in you. We ask in your son's name. Amen.